that's why I like having these conversations because maybe other people agree with me and maybe people won't. But it shows that representation isn't every single queer person, isn't every single trans person, every single person of color. It's more than that. And it contains multitudes. Today I'm talking the history of and inclusion within the horror movie genre with podcaster, horror aficionado, and all-around lovely person, Beza. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Krypton to Alderaan. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Absolutely. Ah, I'm so excited for you to be here. I've recently learned like I'm not supposed to say that and I've got like a list of 50 50 alternatives to say to like, I'm so excited. Who said that? I don't know. I run this new podcasters group, like I've said before on the podcast, and someone, a guest speaker we had on who does interviews, sent us a list of like 50 alternatives. Mm. But anyway, I'm excited that you're here. And I just love your podcast. Thank you. I love, love, love it. Can you please tell us about yourself, your podcast, and other various things you have going on on the internet? Oh, boy. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot to cover. Well, my name is Beza. I use they, them pronouns. And I co-host and produce a podcast called Fear Queers with my bestie, Chase, also known as That Gay Jedi. And we talk all things queerness, all things horror. We usually do, uh, instead of you know typical movie reviews, which we've been trying to get into, it's just so difficult because <laughs> it's just a big thing to overcome. But we usually sit down and just talk about what we've been watching talk about specific themes in horror, specific queer themes in horror. And through that, uh, we also do a... We run a little club online called LGBTQ VHS, which we co-founded as well. And there we just build a community around people who identify as queer or not, who collect VHS and love movies. So we hope to eventually have that be an in-person thing in Chicago as well. Obviously, that's not happening right now. But we hope in the future that we can have screenings and swap meetups and stuff like that. So that's what's going on. That's so cool. Everyone go, well, listen to Fear Queers and subscribe to Fear Queers and leave them a review. Also go follow LGBTQ VHS on Instagram. It's a great follow. I love it. (laughs) And I love seeing all the VHS. So that brings up a good question. Yeah. What is it about VHS? That is a great question, Joey. I mean, I'm a big collector of literally everything. If you could see my room right now, it's like a blockbuster like threw up. It's intentional. It's an intentional vibe. But yeah, VHS is what started for me, my love of movies. I was born in 95. And that's telling of like how I grew up on media. That's just what I've chosen to continue to collect through my adulthood. (laughs) And it's just... It fulfills some kind of like artistic need in me. I love looking at VHS covers. I love how they look in a room. I love how they play. It's all about the aesthetics. And it just makes me happy. It's fun to collect something and have something that maybe other people will understand why you have that need in you to um, have a bunch of VHS tapes around you at all times. Speaking of fear queers, can I just say that I love your interview with Emma, aka Spooky Astronauts? I mean, I love all your episodes, but I thought that was so fun. It's such a cool guest to have. So fun hearing the three of you sort of nerd out about horror. Oh my God, that is so nice to hear because we were so nervous. I've been, I mean, you listened to it, but I've been a huge fan of her for years and just recently sign up for her Patreon, which gives you access to like the Discord chats. And I don't really like comment on videos. I don't really like try to get super involved in communities just because I'm a shy person. And I finally felt the need to like say something in a chat one day. And we just became like, you know, internet friends. And when I when Chase and I started our podcast, I was like, I think the first interview has to be with Emma. She's just she's a horror icon to me. Whenever I need something to watch, I go try to figure out what I haven't watched from hers yet. And it was such a fun time. It was nerve wracking. It's very scary to do interviews. I'm sure Sure you understand that. (laughs) And uh, we got so lucky with Emma because she's 
she's iconic. And I, yeah, we can't wait to have her back. Today, Baz and I are going to talk about the history of horror or whatever. But before we get into the where or how it all began in the world, I'd love to hear where or how it began for you. Oh boy. Yeah. I mean, it, that's... <laughs> It's really interesting whenever I like want to talk about that or someone asks me about it because I genuinely do not know. And I think my go-to answer has to be Goosebumps just because, again, born in 95, the Goosebumps era, <laughs> it was first books. And then I found out that there was a TV show. And that quickly encompassed and just took over every part of my being. And <laughs> I quickly became very obsessed with it. And we actually just recorded an episode with Chase's partner, Blake, who is also a Goosebumps connoisseur. We talk about it a bit at the end of the episode, but it's something that encompasses everything that I love about childhood, which is Goosebumps, VHS, and that gateway into horror that then turned into other movies such as you know, Jennifer's Body is... I'm wearing my Jennifer's Body shirt right now. Obviously my favorite movie of all time. Horror or not, but specifically horror. Goosebumps opened up that possibility for me. So I am indebted to R.L. Stein. Awesome. Very cool. <laughs> we talked a bit about Goosebumps on Krypton to Alderaan's Halloween Spooktacular episode. Yes. And that TV show. And how that TV show was like not for children. I specifically... Oh. Absolutely not. <laughs> I specifically remember the, uh, what was the like doll's name? Oh, Slappy. Yeah, Slappy. I yes. remember those episodes and being like really freaked out. Also, why aren't dolls ever possessed by someone nice? You know what that's I mean? True. Like, that's true. That's a good point. No one ever possesses a Teddy Ruxpin and like helps kids with their homework. It's always something diabolical and murderous. I mean, I guess maybe only demons possess objects and hmm. maybe demons are only evil. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we should normalize angels possessing objects. Normalize or angels possessing objects. I agree. I was going to save this as a surprise for you at the end, but I'll surprise you at the <gasps> beginning. I watched Jennifer's <gasps> body in anticipation of this Joey, conversation. I'm going to cry. <laughs> I watched it during the day and it scared me during the day. <laughs> yeah. What part specifically? Specifically the scene where she, sh Megan Fox shows up in Amanda Seyfried's house and mm -hmm. then just like smiles like that. And first of all, creepy smiles are always creepy oh, and freak and me out. But yeah, at, right at yeah. that scene. And I'm glad they put it like at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Because it primed me for like not having a moment's peace throughout the entire thing. Yes. But at the same time, so that movie came out in 2009. And I just have to say that smile that you're referencing simultaneously horrified me and made me realize I was gay at the same time. It was like, it was life-changing. And it shows the range Megan Fox has that I don't think a lot of... I mean, more people are obviously realizing. It shows her range and like complexity as an actor. And I'm so glad you pointed that out. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. And I you're right. I like Megan Fox gets made fun of more than she's appreciated. Mm -hmm. But the, the scenes in the movie like that, like it's very creepy throughout. And like who isn't in that movie? It's just incredible yeah. to see like, is that Chris Pratt's first? Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> so there's so many there's so many people you recognize in the movie. And also I just love the like nostalgic slang. There's just like every word that comes out of everyone's mouth is mm -hmm. some slang that was like big sure. in the early 2000s. Yeah, I and I related to that so much. My favorite show growing up and one of my favorite shows to this day is Gilmore Girls, which is obviously... And Buffy, obviously, mm -hmm. my favorite show of all time. They're both known for very quippy dialogue. And I think I got a lot of that in Jennifer's Body, which is what really drew me to it as well. And there's a lot of MacGuffins mm -hmm. in that movie, which normally would turn me off, but I really dug it. However they did it, I mean, it just sort of worked. Yeah. So what did you think overall? What's your overall rating of Jennifer's Body? Be honest. Do you want me to give this in Kiki yes. Mamas or is do that it. not something yes, I do should it. do? No, I, I, I let you do it. <laughs> I would give it four out of five. That's great. For something that I didn't... It was my... I actually watched it today. Okay, full cards on the table. I watched it today. 
before I our interview. I wish I was you. And I wish I could rewatch it for the first time. <laughs> for the first yeah. time. Yeah. That's how I feel about everything I'm a fan of. But yeah, really enjoyable. I did not expect a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And you know what? So this is what I started thinking like three quarters of the way through the movie. In my conversation with Chase, we talked about It Follows very briefly as as Mm -hmm. a movie that everyone loved a few years ago and I didn't really connect with. Like three quarters of the way through Jennifer's Body, I was like, is this a better version of It Follows? Like, is that fair to say? Like, I started noticing a lot of similarities between the two movies, but I just liked Jennifer's Body a lot more. I have a confession. I have never seen It Follows I don't know how much I can say, but just from my bias, yes, I will say Jennifer's Body is a better movie. (laughs) It's a better version of everything. (laughs) It is. It really is. You talked a little bit about this up front, but, and this is something I also discussed with Chase, Mm. queer culture and horror and representation in horror. Obviously, you're in Chase's connection and fear queers, and it's all about that, but I would just love to hear what that was like with you getting into, you know, you talked about goosebumps and getting into the genre that way and all Mm -hmm. that stuff. Again, since we're going to be talking about the history of horror, that side of the history and how that connects. It's an interesting connection and conversation to have because I maybe have unpopular ideas about representation in general, because I don't think it's the only aspect of queerness that's ignored. And I think we can say we need more representation in a lot of genres, specifically horror, but a lot of times representation can act kind of as a band-aid that you slap over a multitude of different Mm -hmm. issues. Yeah, you can just get into a lot of complications with representation. So while I think it has a lot of value and we as queer and trans people deserve basic rights such as being seen and heard, I don't know if more representation will solve a majority of our issues. I think a really big issue in horror and queer horror specifically is just access and access to the horror and queer horror that we already have. I think generally it feels good to see yourself on screen. And I'm no expert. (laughs) This is just how I feel. That's why I like having these conversations because maybe other people agree with me and maybe people won't. But it shows that representation isn't every single queer person, isn't every single trans person, every single person of color. It's more than that. And it contains multitudes. So I hope that answers that. Yeah, it does. And a big part of all of this is having conversations about perspective. We want to, if someone's listening to this, the goal would be for them to go and watch a horror thing or not a horror thing with the fresh lens of of understanding your perspective and then Mm -hmm. connecting with it in a different way or appreciating what you're saying and applying that. And Emma from Pink Milk, everyone go watch and listen to Pink Milk. But on one of the Friday night after dark sessions, she said inclusion without representation. Exactly. That studios or whoever can say, okay, throw this person in this movie and, you know, that's it without the actual representation of the life experience. Have you seen that change over time? Is that something that has has changed in a positive way, I guess I should say? Yeah, that's... I think what Emma said that you mentioned is exactly how I feel. It's interesting because with more representation comes more kind of empty modes of representation. So I connect more with what I call queer horror, like Scream, which is, you know, obviously doesn't have a character that's like, oh, hi, I'm gay, who like comes into the movie and acts as a stereotypical gay person or queer person or trans person. I connect more with those movies than I do with, say, a movie like Freaky. That is a super recent movie. What, 2020, I think it came out. So I personally connect to those movies where I can see myself in different actors who might not specifically identify as queer or trans rather than a movie that feels a bit more of the time for some reason. Not that I had a big issue with Freaky. I overall enjoyed it. But I think the more the more in-your-face forms of representation sometimes feel a bit like overkill and don't feel genuine to me. So that's right. that's what I would say about that. Yeah. So... You connect with Scream in a in that way. Can I ask if there's other examples of, of horror movies that connect with you in that way? I think a good representation of queerness and horror is the Fear Street anthology. I connected with those movies in a way that I did not think I was going to. Specifically, the first and third one. I wasn't the biggest fan of the second because it showed, to me, it showed 
representation of a toxic queer relationship because that's what it was in the first movie specifically. And that's something that felt real to me because that's something that I've experienced. That's something a lot of queer people have experienced that isn't really touched upon in queer horror or in queer movies in general. So to have that, and it might not have been super explicit, but that's what it read like to me. So to have something like that, it made the movie feel more real and it made it feel more relatable, which is what I look for in representation is to see myself. That's the basic definition of it. So yeah, I would say Fear Street really did that for me. And it wasn't something that I was expecting, but it turned out to be one of my favorite things of the last year. Wow. Awesome. I wish I had written more notes or notes at all on Fear Street because I have a lot to say about we can we will Fear talk Street. we will talk about it at some point. I would love yes. to. You should come on Fear Queers and we should talk about Fear Street. I am going to try to say this without getting too excited. I would absolutely <laughs> love that. I would really really love that. Which one was your favorite? I'm curious. We don't have to the talk about it too one. much, but okay. The Good. first one for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was just so much in it and I've said before I don't like gore and there is a lot specifically of gore. In the first one. <laughs> in it. But I like a lot of the story that that they set up in the first one. Yep. Is that what's his name? Who made Fear Street? Um well, RL Stein is the original creator. So of course, his impact continues to <laughs> affect me in all stages of my life. So shout out to RL Stein if you're listening. That's great. RL Stein if you're listening. <laughs> let, let us, us know. know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a get that would be. Oh my god. Yeah, that's great. I love that. I love the perspective. I think perspective is very important and Mm -hmm. we need more of in every aspect, including watching horror movies, right? Watching anything, consuming any content. Thank you so much for everything you just said. Thank you for listening. That's all (laughs) I can ask for. So I think like a month ago, you and I had a little brief conversation about some horror books you were reading and specifically on the history Mm -hmm. of horror. I don't really know how to ask any questions about this other than like, where did this start? You know, how did we get here? Why did we do this to ourselves? Great question. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I am not an expert, but Mm -hmm. some real experts that I want to shout out are David J. Skull. He's a cultural historian, critic, and commentator. And he's actually known for his research and analysis of all things horror. He's also a queer icon. So we love him. He wrote multiple books, actually, that all coincide with horror as a genre. He wrote a book on the history of Dracula, which I haven't read yet, but it's on my list. I have two of his books. And one of them is titled The Monster Show, A Cultural History of Horror. And the other is Death Makes a Holiday, A Cultural History of Halloween. So... Those two books are essential reading. I'm assigning them to you now, Joey. Okay, sounds good. I wrote them down. <laughs> yeah. Um, and while I, I, I do love these books, but we have to also recognize that this is from a white male perspective still. Sure. So I recommend Horror Noir, which is a documentary and a book. And this includes Black perspectives as well. So the book is by Robin R. Means Coleman. So I think that's obviously essential reading as well. And that's a perspective that I don't belong to. So I I want to make sure that that's something that I can read as much about as possible and have as much of an understanding as possible. So I recommend the documentary as well. It's a streaming on Shudder and it showcases a history that we don't typically see, which is the history of Blackness and horror. And it does a far better job of explaining it than I ever will. Just watch it, read it, consume however you can. But overall, I mean, the history of horror really starts from books. So we owe our love of horror movies to books. And that originally is the gothic romance novel, which is queer in itself. Queer in its name is gothic romance. <laughs> and of course, it developed into horror. I, I forget the title of the first book, but there is a book with the word castle in it. I don't remember exactly what it's <laughs> called, but that is the first instance of like horror coming through pages into readers' hands. Like that is a big starting point. The first, like we said, the first instances of Gothic romance was probably like 1600s, 1700s. And 
writers such as Edgar Allan Poe and Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker. Those were like our icons and the reason that horror as a genre really exists. Oh, actually, one thing that I also want to mention is Carmilla. Have you ever heard of Carmilla? No, I don't think so. That's not surprising. No one really has. (laughs) But I wanted to share this with you because she was the first real vampire. She existed before Dracula. So she was written into history by Sheridan La in 1872. And that's five years before any mention of Dracula ever existed. And she was actually a, like an actual lesbian vampire. And this is in 1872, which is... It just shows how the queerness and the otherness and the monster in horror has existed for centuries. And out of that came a web series that I quickly became obsessed with, which is free to watch on YouTube. That was actually one of my turning points in horror because while it's, you know, a web series, it's nothing super glamorous or high budget. That's kind of the horror that I think I really turned out loving because it it, it is the bare bones and it's the camp of it that is really pivotal. It just makes sense. It makes sense that this like pulpy, campy horror web series is queer and it's horror. So Carmilla's founding in 1872 was a big turning point. And vampirism obviously is a very... Us queers like to think that vampirism is a big is a big queer genre for us for a lot of different reasons. So that's kind of like the slight overview of horror. Did you have anything that you wanted to mention about that too? Well, I... Actually, I watched a documentary once on the history of Dracula and Vlad the Impaler and mm-hmm. Turgovista, but I really found that documentary incredibly interesting. And obviously, I reference it to this day. So the book on the history of Dracula sounds really interesting. I also think it's interesting that Carmilla came out, as you said, five years before Dracula. And no one knows her. And it was kind of like she was written as a lesbian vampire. And mm-hmm. then like all the white men were like, no, nah, we need a man vampire who seduces yeah. women and takes advantage of women. And Exactly. And... Not that Carmela doesn't do that. That's kind of the whole book is that she pretty much does the same thing. I mean, that's, I guess, a big stereotype in vampire culture and books and TV and movies. But I think there's a lot to be said about how mainstream society sees queer and trans people as predatory mm. and how that comparison to vampirism of like predatory, you know, behavior towards people who aren't vampires just to have food for the night or something. I think that's where that connection meets and where those conversations start. So it's an interesting comparison. Yeah, very. And Chase talked also about camp and how the campiness of it really connects it to queer culture, which is something I'd never considered. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you've connected to from the start? It is and it isn't. I think it is for I'm sure the reasons that Chase named because we agree on a lot of stuff like that. But I would say it isn't just because I feel like when I start to categorize everything around me as camp, it starts to lose its meaning a little bit. So I try to be a little careful with that Mm. and at the same time, not take myself too seriously about it because that's just not what that's about. But I like to limit my... Limit my binary of like what I consider to be camp and maybe what's just bad (laughs) (laughs) that can be like a thin line you become a fan of horror in the Goosebumps era and then you get connected to it and you start learning more about it and now you have this podcast about it so how is your knowledge as you you learn more about the history and all that stuff how, how is that enhanced your appreciation or like connected you to it more? Yeah. I mean, I really, I think maybe most people who maybe don't identify as queer kind of look at, they find horror as a genre first and then maybe they learn, oh, there's like a whole queer genre that maybe I haven't explored yet. Like Portrait of a Lady on Fire is a pretty mainstream queer movie and they discover these movies and I think I had the opposite I didn't really discover what people really call true horror before Jennifer's Body. I was probably like 13 or 14 years old, but that is kind of 
a little late to, I mean, you hear people talk about how they've been in, into horror and ingrained in the culture since they were like kids. And my real, my only real instance of that is like goosebumps or scary stories to tell in the dark. And I think my need for queer content as like a closeted queer person made me really appreciate these movies that showed some like queer subtext, like the first scream with billions too. And actually the opposite of subtext of Jennifer's body. But, you know, th- those movies helped me realize that like, oh, maybe I also like horror. And that wasn't something that was apparent to me. I didn't make that connection. I was just so desperate for, like we were talking about queer representation. I was just desperate for that because I didn't have any of it anywhere else, just in my personal life. So being able to find those and finding ones that I related to in horror movies was just a huge turning point for mm. me. So getting connected to Jennifer's body in 2009, you said different from people who, you know, have been horror fans since they were kids. In the Star Wars fandom, it mm-hmm. is extremely common on probably a daily basis to encounter someone who's like, I've been a fan of Star Wars for longer than you've been alive, so go away. Is there that kind of gatekeeping there as well? For sure. Absolutely. And I think Chase and I talk about this too, because obviously they like understand more than I do. I'm a, a Star Wars newbie. So I I enjoy the movies. I enjoy the world building. I just, I don't know. I don't know. I Because I, there are so many like horror aspects in Star Wars that I really appreciate and enjoy. I love the Mandalorian. And I think it's mostly like it's scary to get into these big worlds that you won't fully understand at first. It's a little intimidating. But I think there's a lot of connectedness with Star Wars and with horror as a genre because these are typically areas of media where they're overtaken by straight white men. I think the idea of it is that we are meant to think that those are the only people who enjoy Star Wars, who enjoy horror because they're the loudest voice. And maybe because as we're seeing with Star Wars and horror and a lot of other genres, queer and trans and POC are just kind of meant to keep quiet, which is just like the way of the world right now. And I think we can see a lot changing in those aspects in Star Wars, in Marvel, in horror as a genre because we're just tired of being quiet and we feel more comfortable coming out of our shells, coming out of the closet, literally taking up space and space that we have been indebted to and spaces that we have been in, but maybe not, maybe in a subtext kind of way, like with Scream and a lot of other movies. Yeah, there's another thing that's pretty common in Star Wars. And I would ask if this is also common in in horror So many times if someone calls for queer representation in Star Wars, the overwhelming comments are keep sexuality out of Star Wars without obviously that person realizing that it's there. That's the sexuality is already in Star Wars. You're just not paying attention because it's heteronormative. That's your world. Right. There are people who, you know, want to say keep queerness, keep your sexuality out of a certain movie. These are people who love horror with like crazy sex scenes and like really intense scenes that might not be appropriate. And like you said, it's just, it's about what's convenient to that person. And it's about that person not wanting to be uncomfortable with a perspective that isn't theirs because a lot of people just are happy with the way that things have been for the entirety of society. (laughs) And don't want to see any real change because they feel threatened. I don't really know what to say to those people, but you're really just going to have to understand that that's not the way the world's going to continue to work and we are changing for the better. Yeah. Also, just like, shh, don't talk. Just don't talk it's, to me. It's so much easier to just not say a thing than to say a thing. Be quiet. Yeah. I'm, I'm just like hoping that... Again, different perspectives can open more and more people up to it. And those other people can go from the loudest to the lowest. And we can all start to be the loudest. Absolutely. I want to do a classic Krypton to Alderaan segment. 
the what we're into segment. So there's a couple of stuff that I might go on a rant about here. And I've got one to two surprise questions. If I can remember the second one, I didn't write it down. But before I get into my or what I hope can be our rant. I can't wait. I want to know there's any new horror stuff that you're into. Oh, so much. Yeah, without giving any spoilers or anything, I will just list, I guess, a couple things that I have been fully obsessed with. One of those being What We Do in the Shadows. I just finished the third season and I didn't know I was going to be so obsessed with this show. <laughs> but I'm so glad that I am. I friggin' love that yes. show. And I don't mean to compare things, but I think I I enjoy that show much more than I enjoyed the movie. Me too. And... I would absolutely love to also talk to you and Chase about what we do in the shadows. Oh my God, I can't wait for that to happen. (laughs) I love that show. And I think it's like connected back to everything we've talked about here. Yeah. There's so much in that show and I laugh out loud every episode. I think it's a phenomenal show, but I think there's so much sex positive stuff in that show. Yeah, I think it's just new and different and funny and fun. And I love it. I love everything about it. Me too. Uh, Yeah. And I think because I had only seen the movie until recently, my partner and I just started, we just binge watched the whole series basically. And I think the third season was just wrapping up as we were getting started with the whole show. And I don't know what my hesitation was. I think I pictured it to be something like The Office or like Parks and Rec, which is, I enjoy those shows to an extent. I just didn't know if I needed that in my life at the moment. But I'm so glad Chase made me watch all of it. So shout out to Chase. (laughs) And it's on Staten Island, which is close to my heart. Of course. I love that all. Did Chase start watching Buffy? No, Joey. So you're... (laughs) Well, that's not fair. Chase, we're calling you out. Yes, we are. But no, they will. They promised me last night that they were going to. So I, I have faith. It is a little unfair because Buffy is such a like oh, monolith. So it's so, so much. And you want to be able to take it all in and enjoy it. And I mean, it's just not the same kind of show as what we do in the shadows. It's very different. So, But something that Chase and I have been talking about a lot that I also have been loving is the Chucky TV series. Oh, I haven't started watching it. I... I'll say it here first. I have never seen a child's play Chucky movie ever. So the show has inspired me to really like get into it. Again, no specific reason. I didn't think it was ever my vibe. But if it's anything like the show, I'm all in. It's great. And there's only a couple episodes out right now. But it's a very digestible and fun, cute, horrifying queer show. Love it. But one movie that I am that has stuck with me since I've seen it is Last Night in Soho. I cannot express how deeply horrifying, beautiful, all of the words, all of the adjectives this movie was. And I think it's my favorite movie of the year. Awesome. Is that streaming somewhere? No, it's it will be, I'm sure, maybe by the time this is out. Absolutely recommend it. Yeah, it's stuck with me since I've seen it. And that makes a good movie to me. Yeah, I love that. So highly recommend. I'll put all our recommendations in the show notes. Yeah. And I mean, Netflix has been pretty good in terms of horror. I mean, I have a Shutter account. So I that's obviously my main form of horror intake. But I think Netflix is trying to grow out their selection. I will say a movie that I hated was Night Teeth. That's on Netflix. It's with Megan Fox and she's in it for five minutes. It's the best five minutes of the movie, (laughs) but it is like a vampire story. Wow. That was a bad movie for so many different reasons. Don't watch it. That's all I'll say. (laughs) (laughs) Don't watch it. You know what? I'll put our anti-recommendations in the show notes as well. Anti-recommendations. I'm sorry, (laughs) Megan, if you're listening. Speaking of Netflix, can we do a little bit of the same thing with Midnight Mass? Oh my God. Of course. And maybe... Mike Flanagan in general, that would be great. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you want to start or should I? (laughs) Where to begin? Well, I think I have to say right off the bat is if I don't finish a show, I really didn't like it. And I don't do that often. Did not finish Midnight Mass. I have two episodes left. So what happened at the end of... the Spoilers for Midnight Mass, everybody. Yeah, spoilers. But it's going on the do not watch yeah. section of the show notes. What's the last thing that happened? 
the last thing I can remember, literally the last thing I can remember is I don't remember any of the character names, but the young woman in the wheelchair suddenly was able to walk. Not sure how that works. Didn't want to find out. Didn't finish the series. But she goes and forgives the man who shot her. Oh, I love that guy. That I actor, love that who's actor. Who's also in Halloween Kills, right? We talked a lot about that. Yes. And he's, he's great. He's the saving grace of the show. Stop doing Mike Flanagan stuff and go do something else. Not Halloween Kills. Maybe something else. Something else. But yeah, I love him. So I think she gets out of the wheelchair in like the third or fourth episode. I don't remember how many episodes there are. I don't either. And that's just the last thing I remember. I, I'm sure I've watched after that. That's just the last thing I can remember. So the son character who like mm-hmm. drunk driver hit the girl. And did you see him actually out in the boat that he's having like visions of? Did that happen? He's out in the boat with... Mike Flanagan's wife. I don't know any of the character names or any of the actor names. Oh, I think I stopped at that monologue. They like had a big monologue together in a house? Question mark. Oh my God. Where they're talking about what happens when you die. It's like... Oh my God. It's... Oh man. I mean, I think that's where I actually stopped watching. Not that any of the other monologues in the show are good. No. But that one was like... 20-year-olds staying up too late, having a conversation about the meaning of life. Like had one too many drinks and just like could not keep it together. I strongly disliked that. I have such a problem with shows monologuing because it's always so unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Like this never happens in real life. But let's start at the beginning since you haven't seen the whole show. I would say like watch the last 15 minutes of the final episode because it's just satisfying to watch the whole damn thing end. Yeah. But I think the show started off with a great hook like Mike Flanagan does. Mm-hmm. The monster and it just kind of no one actually see like you don't get to see it and there's this menacing presence mm-hmm. and I love that. Like that's very appealing. This unidentifiable being. Yeah. Were you hooked at any point in time? Because I was hooked like The first episode probably hooked me in because of that aspect of it. I hate to say it, but I really was not. And I talked about this a little bit on Fear Queers, but I think the immediate religious aspect threw me for a loop. Yes. Not that I have a huge issue with religion and horror at all, but I couldn't grasp onto anything to relate to. And that's maybe not the best way to go into any kind of media, but that's just what I've been doing recently and I just couldn't grab a hold on to anything. Yeah. What really intrigued me is, sorry again to anyone listening who's religious, I'm not a big fan of religion, but the idea that religion was kind of the bad guy Mm -hmm. in the show was a little bit intriguing to me. The new priest was obviously a bad guy and doing something to the town in the name of his faith. And I love a lot of the cast. Yeah, me too. I mean, I love Mike Flanagan's wife. I think she's... Kate Siegel is a great, incredible actor. I would love to see her in something that isn't made by her husband. <laughs> I, I Maybe it exists, but I don't know it. He kind of did the same thing to me with Bly Manor. But Bly Manor, the ending of it, I've come to appreciate. However, I think that there are some characters in that show, like the guy who kills his girlfriend and then there's no repercussions to that at the end of the show. He killed his girlfriend so that they could be together mm-hmm. forever and she didn't want to die and it was this big horrible thing and he also killed the housekeeper, whatever her name was. And so nothing bad ever happened to him. The show just kind of ended. He fades away or whatever. So anyway, that's something that I don't like about Mike Flanagan's stuff. Mm-hmm. There's no a- accountability for some stuff like See, that. See, I don't know if I'm going to say I disagree. But Bly Manor is one of my top 10 favorite shows. And obviously, we didn't get some characters due and we didn't get what we wanted out of certain characters. Obviously, Danny and Jamie's relationship. But sometimes I just want something that is going to make me feel heartbroken. And I think it successfully did that. And same with Hill House, I would say, which is crazy because... I mean, they're both obviously Mike Flanagan and he just disappointed me so much with this one, but I guess you can't win all of them. I think that's why with all of the issues that come out of 
blind manner specifically, that felt real to me. Is like maybe certain people don't get what they have coming to them. And that's horrifying and that's maddening, but that's life. So that is what felt genuine to me that, that, that I didn't get out of Midnight Mass. Especially someone like that character. Yes. Specifically like a person like him just gets away. But yeah, I was heartbroken at the end of Bly Manor. That final episode and that final scene is very, very emotional. I had that song on repeat for days and I couldn't stop crying. Yeah. He did a great job with that. And again, yeah, I think he tried to do something similar in Midnight Mass with sort of a love story at the end, but it just missed the mark. It really did. But I also, confession, I have not watched Hill House. Okay. I obviously recommend it. I would say it's not like Bly Manor at all. That is a ghost story and Bly Manor is a love story. That's what I would say. Yeah, that's something that they do at the end of Bly Manor. Like she's telling the story and one of the characters comes up after and she's like, that wasn't a scary story. It was a love story. And that was a kind of moment that he does a lot in Midnight Mass where it's like, I get it. You didn't have to say Yeah, that. I agree. And I think done in small moments, it touches your heart. And I get the point of that. But I was hit over the head with it in Midnight Mass. Hush. I think you said on Fear Queers you didn't like Hush. I... Like Tush? I mean, that's that's totally valid. I would love to hear why. I genuinely am interested. I think, again, because there was something so new about it, and I hate the damsel in distress mm -hmm. trope. The character in that wasn't... Maybe she was for a little bit, but then it's almost like she took control of the whole movie and was just like, no, this is the way we're going to do mm -hmm. this. And I thought it was very badass, and it was new, and... I just loved seeing that person fight yeah, back. I love that. Like the bad guy picked her because she was deaf and sort of in the middle of nowhere. And it just like didn't work out for him the way he wanted yeah. it to. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I totally agree. I think that's obviously the aspect of the movie that I really enjoyed. And like we said, it's not often we see characters who are bad get what they have coming to them. and. That's an instance where we did get that. And I can appreciate that. I think I... I don't know why. I think I was just bored. It couldn't keep my attention, but I'm happy to give it a rewatch. What other stuff is there in your life? I want to know like what other things you're a fan of. I think we've talked a little bit about Shira. I love Shira. I don't know how to explain. I don't think there are words in the English language that allow me to explain how much I love Shira. I had described it recently as Star Wars is my life. Star Wars is 100% my life. But Shira is my heart and yep. soul. I think that's the best way I can express my love for that I show. think you nailed it. I don't know what else there is to say. I mean, it accomplishes everything that it set out to do. And I'm so sad it's over, but I think they did the right thing and ended it when it needed to end. And The Enemies to Lovers is, again, for the millionth time, my favorite thing. So I just wish I had it when I was a kid. I guess that's like all I can really say about it. Yeah, hopefully it was very beneficial to a new generation. Mm -hmm. But it's absolutely beautiful from start to finish. It's just every single second of that show is incredible. The ending is perfect. It's the most perfect thing in the yes. world. I just love, I love every every single thing about I that. I totally show. agree. So, do you have other? You and Chase have talked about. You both like mm -hmm. Marvel. I do love Marvel. I don't know if it loves me all the time, but I, <laughs> I think that's like the closest thing I can compare to your love of Star Wars is I think Marvel and Star Wars have a lot of commonalities and a lot of differences, but just being such big, like otherworldly franchises that so many different types of people fall into. Some are good, some are not so good. But obviously all of the TV shows that have been coming out, I have been obsessed with WandaVision and Loki in particular. I really enjoyed What If. I was surprised I enjoyed Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I'm not the biggest Captain America, that side of Marvel fan. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm so excited for Hawkeye. Can't believe I'm saying it, but I am in love with Haley Steinfeld. Thinking of Haley Steinfeld, I'm also obsessed with the show Dickinson. Now, I cannot wait 
for Kate yes. Bishop. Very excited for that. And I'm excited to see, hopefully they'll do the character of Hawkeye justice. Like maybe we'll get to see a good or a better version of that character, in my opinion, than we've been able to see in the yeah, movies. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath, but I love comics, Hawkeye. Yeah, yeah, I thought that the closest we came to that was in Age of Ultron. Mm-hmm. Hawkeye in that, I love his speech to Wanda in the weird shed yeah. when he's like, we're falling from the sky and I have a bow and yeah. arrow. You know, I think that's like the closest. And then there come. was just a hard turn after Endgame that just was like, okay, so I don't like you. <laughs> is the point of that. Yeah, the whole Ronin arc. Hopefully we'll get something good. I have a surprise question for you. I'm ready. I would like to know your top three favorite Buffy episodes. <gasps> I just got chills. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And I'm very curious to see if they align with some of my favorite Buffy. I'm also a big Buffy fan. Okay. I guess I should have said that. Yeah, it's great to know. Okay, let me do this without crying. So one of them has to be Once More With Feeling. That is my number one. I'm so glad. It just has to be. You said that. (laughs) And it was just the 20-year anniversary of that episode. I friggin' love that episode. I'm so happy. I mean, it created the environment of TV shows doing musical episodes. Like Buffy was that. And... I sing the music constantly. I have the vinyl. Like I literally, it's, 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 it is ingrained in my brain for so many reasons. Every song is a hit. Yes. Every single song. <laughs> and it showcases the best characteristics of each character. It like perfectly encompasses what everyone is going through in that moment. Yeah. It's just a perfect episode of TV. So that's definitely one of them, if not the number one. And then I would say the body is one of the most like heart-wrenching. And this is why I love Buffy so much is because it hits every single point and every single emotion that the human body can possibly feel. That episode is heartbreaking. Everything about it is start to finish, like what it feels like to have a loss and to grieve and like starting the process of grieving the opening of the episode to the absence of any music in the entire episode. The silence, it's just perfect. And it's not at the same time. It's, it's horrible and it's depressing. And it's, it sets up the rest of the show in a way that's like a lot of people, a lot of Buffy fans hate the six and seven seasons. I understand why. I absolutely disagree. I think the body is what sets up seasons six and seven, which are two of the best seasons of TV ever. Yeah. And I think there's something so... I think that that episode's a turning point. Like Buffy says in Once More With Feeling, she's died twice. Mm -hmm. That episode forces her to experience what that loss feels like. Mm -hmm. Then that being a changing point in the show made so much more powerful by the fact that like the main characters died. Yeah. And that goes into, I think, my last favorite episode, which is The Gift, which is the season finale of season five which is when Buffy dies for the second time. Sorry for the spoiler alert if you haven't seen Buffy. (laughs) (laughs) But that episode, in a lot of ways, is the continuation of that setting up of the dark, depressing Buffy that we're going to get for the next two years. And it's perfect because that's who Buffy is. What she does, what she sacrifices, sums up who she is, what her purpose, what her role is on Earth. and. It just encompasses what the Slayer is and like every sense of the word. It's just a beautiful episode. It's, I mean, Glory as a big bad is my favorite big bad. Like she's iconic. She's a gay icon. She's everything. It's just, it's a perfect way to end. Well, they thought it was going to be the end of the show. And that episode would have been a perfect series finale of Buffy. Yeah, I guess that being said, I I also... It's been a long time since I've watched them, but I also really remember liking the last two seasons. And I think it's the final season. It must be. She starts training the other Slayers. Slayers, yeah. And the, you know, the idea that that the show has evolved into this, anyone can be a Slayer. Any woman can be badass, Mm -hmm. ass-kicking vampire Slayer. And I can vividly remember the scene of her and uh, Dushku's character. Oh, Faith. Faith like interacting with and training the other slayers. I mean, that 
alone gave me chills. But like, if any reason you have, that is a huge reason to love the last season of Buffy. Mm -hmm. It opens up such a big world and so many opportunities for other women that we haven't seen before. And it's Buffy redefining what it means to be a Slayer and giving opportunity to other women who might not have had it before. If I wasn't going to say The Gift, I was going to say Chosen, which is the last episode of the entire series is one of my favorite episodes because of its simplicity. It's perfect. And I have no complaints. I got to say, huge fan of Spike. Oh my God, same. I love him. That's a huge part of that last episode for me. And loving that last episode is his sacrifice. Yep. And taking it to the next level, I loved Angel. I absolutely loved that show. And when Spike came to Angel, that changed the show for me. And I loved it up until the season finale. And I also love that season finale or series finale. Yeah. I watched Angel approximately once and I loved it. I do want to do a rewatch. Yeah. But I would say that we're two out of three on our top three Buffy, favorite Buffy episodes. I want to know your other one. Yeah. So once more with feeling the body and I have to, I think, unless you can convince me otherwise, I think I have to go with Hush. Oh, perfect. I was going to say that too. Love that episode. Again, something so new and again, silent and different. And I don't know, there's just something about it. I wish I was old enough to like be able to watch those episodes come out live because the way that people must have just been like, what the fuck is happening? Like, (laughs) it's just so like, I miss TV like that. And I miss being surprised by something that feels formulaic, but is just the opposite. But Hush is is perfect and horrifying. Yeah, very scary. (laughs) Yep. Those are our top three favorite Buffy episodes. I'm glad we got to do that. It was so fun. Man, it's been a long time since I've talked about Buffy with anyone. Hey, I'm always here. (laughs) I love that. Beza, can you tell me and everyone else where we can find you? You can find me on the Fear Queers podcast. And you can find that on whatever podcast streaming app that you use. And you can also find us at LGBTQVHS on Instagram and at Fear Queers Pod on Twitter. I have personal ones, but I am never on them because social media sucks. Well, great. Thanks for all of that. Everyone go follow Beza and Fear Queers and LGBTQVHS. Thank you again so much, Beza, for being here. I loved this. What a great conversation. Thank you so much. It was an honor and I cannot wait for more.